Um, so Nick, I am super curious just because mm. you've been in this space so long, you've got a long Thank trail you. of receipts. You have been, I'm not, I'm not calling you old or anything, but you've got a history. Have you ever been canceled before? Uh, not in, uh, not as a kind of public intellectual or as a professional libertarian. I, I was canceled. I think I was in third, fourth grade, something like that. I, uh, participated <laughs> in a mock presidential election where I had to play Spiro Agnew. Uh, the vice presidential candidate, uh-huh. and I lost badly in that re-election campaign. So that's the closest. I that's got. the closest a third but grade talent show. For for my <laughs> sake, uh, you know, for uh, you know, part of it is is that I, um, you know, I identify as libertarian, and that's not a get out of jail free card or anything like that. But it's like you know, I write what I believe, and I try and argue it, you know, forcefully, and I try to live a decent life. Um, you know, and as a result, I've made mistakes and I've been corrected and, you know, and, and kind of had to acknowledge when I've made mistakes, but I've never been canceled in, um, you know, in any real sense of that word. I don't think this is true in all cases. Yeah. And, and I think you can attest to this, but I think with a lot of people who walk right into the buzzsaw, it's because there's a perception of inauthenticity, like you say grifting all the yeah. time, yeah. right? Like when people are able to seize on you doing something for a specific purpose that's not authentic, that makes things much worse. It makes you like much lower hanging fruit. Yeah, also, and I think what you said, when you're much more upfront about mm-hmm. who you are and your beliefs, yeah. and you're just unapologetic, I find that those people tend to get canceled less or right. if at all, because yeah. there's no surprises. One of the ways that I think about a lot of cancel culture is that, you know, if you you know, assume you're a burglar and you're walking down a block and you're going to try every door on the block. And if the door is open, you're going to go in. If it's locked, you'll go on to the next house. And I think with cancellation, a lot of the times the people who get canceled and some people get canceled completely wrongly and things like that, but others kind of invite it because they're inauthentic or they don't really know what they're talking about, but then they'll make a stand and then they, you know, and then they can't defend themselves or they don't know what they're talking about. And you know, so it's that burglar who's going to go on to the next door. And as long as you're, you know, if you're armed with knowledge of what you're talking about, you're arguing in good faith and you can actually have conversation as opposed to just, you know, yelling at somebody and then having them yell at you. This would explain why actors and actresses are such prime targets yeah. for cancellation because they go. don't believe anything that they say. Right. All right. Hey, everybody, just a word to all of you watching. You're watching right now. I'm Stephen Kent. I'm being joined today by contributor Manessa Gothics, and we're talking to Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large of Reason and author of a recent feature article titled Self-Cancellation, Deplatforming and Censorship, a Taxonomy of Cancel Culture. If you even somewhat like what you're hearing, seeing, sensing, hit that like button and subscribe. We have new episodes every Thursday and original content in the days between. So Nick, tell me a little bit about your article. Um, it's a really great feature piece for this month's yep. magazine. I like it. Self-cancellation, deplatforming, and censorship. A breakdown of sort of like the three heads of this hydra right. of the thing we call cancel culture. What's your main premise? So my idea here is that there are, you know, cancel culture operates on at least three different levels. And by cancel culture, I mean kind of coordinated attempts at public shaming or getting a mass of people, typically online, but not only to try and get somebody fired, somebody removed from public discourse or whatever, oftentimes without engaging the arguments that are put in place or the behavior uh, and things like that. Um, I kind of rely on Jonathan Rausch's definition of cancel culture in a new book he has, um, uh, which is called The Constitution of Knowledge, which is really fantastic. But 
What I argue is that there's, you know, cancellation happens at the individual level where a lot of people will accept it and say, I cancel myself. You know, the guy from Mumford and Sons, the banjoist from Mumford and Sons, <laughs> did this earlier this year. The, the story, by the way, is a great uh, kind of rundown of recent cancellation, you know, episodes. Right. I mean, it's the personal aspect. Right. And then there's corporate right. cancel culture. So like censorship by yeah. companies, people getting and deplatformed. Platforms. And then there's yeah. governmental. And so when you look at this, each of them is bigger than the next. It's it's harder to like I can I can cancel myself, you know, okay, that's you know weird, but it's not a, it's not a social issue when a platform <laughs> kicks you off, uh, you know, as we can all talk about this, you know, that's worse because it's harder to get to the next place. It casts a bigger shadow. And then when government is actually censoring people, and I think there's a lot of movement on the right and the left to institute uh, forms of government censorship to say Twitter and YouTube, et cetera, can't you know, their business model has to follow government mandates, either to moderate everybody or not moderate everybody, et cetera. That's the biggest problem. And so, but I say these three levels kind of interact with one another and that the goal from a, a kind of libertarian, a reason style, free minds and free markets model is that we want to have a public square. We want to have a debate culture where as much speech is, you know, is permissible and possible as as you can imagine, uh, because these things reinforce one another, and then they make it all harder and harder to you know to well, get. Let's talk out about of the this. reinforcing element of it. And let's start with the personal, because I think this yeah. is the thing that we see happen in the public square the most, um, you know, no doubt. And Vanessa, you talk about this a whole lot, which is can- self cancellation by people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, people come after you, and if you give them something, if you apologize, then it's kind of over for you in yeah. a sense. How do you see that play out? Because if we have this sort of cultural rot where people are not even willing to stick up for themselves, that's going to be the thing that percolates all the mm-hmm. way to the top highest rungs of power. Right. It really just comes down to the individual. And I think that people need to be feel more comfortable saying, no, I'm not going to apologize for something that I didn't do anything wrong. And it's usually opinions. Right. It's usually, you know, how dare you have that belief yeah. or something like that. Um, and I think that that is... That's worse because it's 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 weakening people and it kind of emboldens the mob to, like you yeah. said, look for the next door. Right. And, but, you know, Winston Marshall, the, the guy from Mumford and Sons, had made the inexcusable mistake of tweeting to Andy No, the controversial journalist. Or, brave really man. Yeah. Yeah. Brave man. Like yeah. Your book was interesting. <laughs> You're a brave man. Yeah. And then. You know, so then, like, right after that, he said, you know, like, I did not realize, I'm truly sorry, I didn't realize how many people I know and don't know that I offended with this statement. And it's that kind of groveling abnegation that is is deeply disturbing, because it's one thing to be like, okay, I was wrong. You know, it's another thing to, you know, kind of admit to some kind of metaphysical or moral guilt. It's a ritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's a ritual. And that actually reminds me because I I spoke with someone that grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China. Mm -hmm. And she had mentioned something similar where people kind of self-criticize themselves and kind of like, do you see some comparisons? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, you know, one thing that we have to, I think, lay on the table immediately, though, too, is like in the Cultural Revolution, if you got on the wrong side of the, uh, you know, the Red Guard, um, you were sent, you know, from a city to the hinterlands. You might you were in prison. You might have been killed. Here, you know, Winston Marshall is going to be a solo artist. So, it, it, like, you know, it's not yeah. quite the same thing. 
but the dynamic is there. And, um, you know, to take it to the next level, one of the pe- people I talk about is Dave Pilkey, who if you are either young enough or you have kids who are young enough, you've read the Captain Underpants series, a popular kids book. One of his books, which is not in that series, but had um, it was about cavemen from the future doing right. kung fu. And he and his publisher said, like, we are practicing passive racism because our book talks about cavemen doing kung fu and it's cultural appropriation. I guess it's evolutionary appropriation or something like that. And it was the result of a single, um, you know, kind of critic who was saying, you guys shouldn't be doing this. And the publisher and Dave Pilkey were like, please, please forgive us. We didn't understand this. We're pulling those books. And like, that's, it's not going to solve the problem, you know, and it's like, like, talk about it or something like that. Um, and it, it just emboldens the next, you know, set of talks. You mentioned China. So actually, yeah. because China was getting a little bit of a of spend this week because of Nicki Minaj. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Nicki Minaj made the internet and I guess like all of stardom and the White House angry, right. which we should talk about that. The White House and, uh, you responded know, to I, Nicki Minaj I, to put her in her place. Yeah. yeah, I think urologists were also up in arms about that yeah. because, you know, she had the testicle talk, you know, that's she's running into their territory. Right. <laughs> You know, I mean, so like this is what happens and it's it's scary, like just a regular, well, she's not a regular person, but a person steps out of line in the rungs of power and all the way at the White House, they have to go out of their way to condemn you, to bring you back into line on vaccinations because you're an influencer, right? You're going to cause harm by leading people in your direction or speaking your mind. And she said about the entire experience, I remember going to China and they were telling us, you know, you cannot speak out against, you know, the people in power there, etc. And I remember all of us thinking, oh, okay, we understand and we respect the laws here. And that is so different from where we live. But don't y'all see what is happening? Don't y'all see we are living in that time? Basically, just goes on to say, like, we are drifting in this direction of totalitarianism in our culture. And that seems right to me. Um, It's not China. It's not the same thing as the struggle sessions, but wasn't part of what they did in the struggle sessions. And I think you two both know this better than me. It was all about that sort of lashing yourself with a nine tails sort of deal and publicly condemning yourself. Because that's what we do with this whole this whole trend. Yeah, that's literally what we're using the template. It's not as drastic as what they did during struggle sessions, but it's definitely the template that's going to lead us closer to that. Yeah, and it's bad. I mean, it's bad for discourse, you know, and especially something about COVID, because this is, uh, you know, there's an Italian philosopher named Giorgio Agamben, who is a follower of Michel Foucault. Uh, who talked a lot about power structures and whatnot. And Agamben, after uh, 9-11, and every government you know, in Europe and, and the United States uh, insisted that there was a state of exception, is his phrase for it, where normal liberal governance rules, you know, where you have freedom of speech and freedom of movement and freedom of association, those have to be suspended because we're in a state of exception. And in order to save liberal democracy, we have to suspend all of its functional rules because otherwise we're, you know, we're going to be killed by terrorists. And Agamben, when uh, COVID-19 hit, and he's in Italy, and they started locking down in really draconian ways where you weren't allowed to leave your apartment and things like that, which turned out to be really bad, you know, because, like, then you're stuck inside with a bunch of old people, uh, particularly in Italy. He's like, we're always coming up with states of exception. And I think, you know, what is happening now with COVID is, oh, well, you know, so Nicki Minaj, it's one thing, like, she can have... You know, she can talk about, you know, uh, WAP or something like that. And that's like, <laughs> oh, maybe that's gross or it's good or whatever. But if now she's doing COVID misinformation, so we really have to crack down on her because she's evil, et cetera. And it's, it's insane. Like, I mean, you don't suspend free speech because people are debating 
you know, their culture and COVID in particular, the government is one of the biggest sources of misinformation. I mean, you know, and that's, I, I'm vaxxed. I got the vaccine as soon as I could. I think COVID is bad, but I also think we're overreacting. But I know that social media is like blocking all sorts of people or trying to constrain conversations, even as the government goes from, you know, don't wear masks, they don't work, to must remember, wear yeah, masks, the mask don't discourse. wear masks, you know, yeah. et cetera. So. Yeah. With the... Um the trends that we sort of see play out in our culture, we sort of go through these like decades and periods of censorious fervor, people just like really being up in arms about speech, expression, um, all sorts of social norms. And then we have moments of liberalization. Um, can you kind of break down like your view of how we enter and exit some of those periods? Because, you know, you look at like the 60s and the 70s, a, a period of hyper liberalization, you kind of get to the 90s, it's sort of the last moment of it. And then we go right into the internet era, yeah. fears about it, and you never know where the left and the right are going to fall on yeah. either side of these eras. Because we're in this weird moment now where like right now the right seems to be more eager to defend even more like libertine kind of speech yeah. because of the left being, I think, out to get anything that you might right. call sexualized. So right? like in the, and, and in the, you know, the big debates over things like Section 230, the Communications Decency Act law that, you know, immunizes platforms from a lot of liability for libel and uh, defamation and whatnot. Um, you know, liberals and progressives, even more than liberals, want to, you know, patrol hate speech or, you know, Russian misinformation or whatever. And they always come up with a, a kind of, you know, a public hygiene reason for it. It's never like, I'm, I'm not personally against this. This is just going to destroy the country. So we really need to regulate it, you know, political speech. And the right, weirdly, in places like Florida and Texas, where, you know, Republican legislatures have passed laws that are one has already been kind of uh, held in in amber by a federal court and the Texas law will be struck down. But they're saying you can't moderate anything. Like you're not allowed to. Like if you're a, if you're a social media platform over a certain size, you don't get to say who's on, who's not, or what they're allowed to talk about, which is strange coming from the right, which is normally like trying to censor, you know, all sorts of speech. I think what happened, you know, there was a moment in the late 50s, and I go into it a little bit in the story, where publishers uh, and people like in a post-war America where people were getting wealthy, people were getting more educated, and people were engaging the world and ideas, publishers finally did these bold things where they said like uh, Allen Ginsberg's Howl, which has a lot of F-bombs in it, should be allowed to be published anywhere in the country without facing up. We just taken on fascism. We just took on yeah, the Nazis, you know, right? Like, why not? And we're, and we're fighting the Soviet <laughs> Union, which is bad because yeah. it controls speech, right? And and thought patterns. And you know, books like Lady Chatterley's Lover and Tropic of Cancer were not allowed to be. They were not. Nobody published them in America because they would be tried for obscenity. We went through a legal and cultural revolution that proceeded throughout the sixties and a good chunk of the seventies. Um, by the 90s, and you know, uh, and Ronald Reagan, in a weird way, he got rid of the fairness doctrine, which you know dealt with uh, mm -hmm. FCC rules on broadcast media, which was huge. Then. Yep. TV and, and radio, getting rid of the fairness doctrine, actually opened up all sorts of free speech, like you know, uh, radio in particular, you could editorialize in, in a new way, and it, it just expanded what people were able to say. And then in the 90s, there was this interesting moment with the internet. It was really a coalition of people on the right and the left, and especially in the Clinton administration, people like Janet Reno, who, you know, is just one of the worst attorneys generals Gore, of all right? time. Yeah, she well, she was not yeah. in office. I mean, she had the year of Al Gore, 
But, um, you know, with the Internet, there was this profusion of speech. Anybody anywhere could say anything and you could stumble across it. And they tried hard as hell to treat the Internet like a broadcast network where it was going to be subject to all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, indecency rules. Thankfully, that got beaten out, you know, by by the Supreme Court. People at places like the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, Reason, Wired Magazine were like, no, this, you know, we've just invented fire here and you want to, you know, extinguish it before it gets going. Vanessa, did you kind of grow up with this sort of rosy disposition about the prospect of the internet to be a free and open place? Like, I feel like gamers and particularly people in streaming and people who spend their time on like, not the deep web, right? But like sort of the the uh, non-mainstream sites of the web to do chat boards and all sorts of forums and stuff. They have always had a sense of the internet as a frontier and we're not in that period anymore. It's under siege. We're not. I have no idea what happened to it. But I grew up during a, a, an era where I understood the Internet was a marketplace of ideas. You're going to meet some good people and some creepy people. That just comes with the territory. And if you're a gamer, it's part of becoming a gamer where you hear crazy things on the mic. Yeah. So I don't I don't. It, well, it's weird. It's interesting that you say you grew up with that. And then it did change sometime. I would say, you know, and I'm basing this on my kids experiences. They're 27 and 20. But there was a moment in the early teens or maybe the mid teens where that kind of stopped like that became really problematic in a big way i think it became problematic once people started becoming addicted to uh, validation through the internet Hmm. i think once people started focusing on how many clicks can i get how many retweets i can get and stuff like that i think it it started to become like almost like a competition like a social Hmm. competition uh, which, which is with me i've never treated it like that it's just a place for entertainment and i don't take any of that home with me um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a market behavior in some ways, like it turning into turning the internet into social media by and large, where we're driven by our impulses for gratification and approval from our peers. Like it's sort of one of those things that I think is embedded in the way that capitalism works, which is just going off people's basic nature. And it works when you're talking about a marketplace, but when you're talking about online crowds and the way that people move together, I think it's incredibly destructive and possibly something that we're just going to regret years down the road. Oh, I, I Did either of you guys ever uh, use Club Penguin? Oh, no. <laughs> I've heard of it. What, what is this? <laughs> Club Penguin, my younger son, it was a, a you know, a social media out platform for like preteens. And, it, you know, it was it was a it was a safe zone, which it should be, you know, and it was like it was policed pretty heavily and you weren't allowed to, you know, curse or be creepy. And they really police that. My fear is that that, you know, instead of that being a nice, you know, side room on the Internet for kids, it's like that's what every, you know, the people who are in charge of things or want to be in charge of things want to turn the entire Internet into Club Penguin. And, you know, uh, to go on that market metaphor in a marketplace of ideas, you're going to have a lot of different places. And it's not for me, it's not bad that Twitter wants to, you know, police itself in a particular way. Because as long as you can leave Twitter and go someplace else, or or that you can work within Twitter to, to um, you know, in the, in the piece I talk about this guy, Albert Hirschman, a political economist who wrote a book in the early 70s called Exit Voice and Loyalty, mm-hmm. which is about how do you how do you affect change in, in countries and organizations and corporations that are going downhill? Yeah? And he says you can either uh, demonstrate or use exit voice or loyalty, voice 
Uh, loyalty is merely like going along with whatever. Loyalty happens. is a bad yeah. option. And right. it's like becoming a company man, you know? Yeah. Uh, voice is that you use the mechanisms in place to lobby for your position and to reform the system from within. And then exit is like you say, I'll see you later and I'm going out here to start my own version of things. You did That's, exit and voice. Yes. <laughs> exit, yeah. exit Twitch for being to launch a, a bunch of woke skulls and yep. go and rebuild something somewhere else. But the worry though is that like even like YouTube, right? Like mm -hmm. you moved to YouTube yep. to rebuild your 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 commentary mm -hmm. career and you could get axed at any time. Yeah. yeah. And you, then if you go to Patreon, you might get kicked off of there, like even if you're web hosting. So it's Part of that, I think, is inevitable because it's like, you know, your re the restaurant in your neighborhood that you love gets rid of your favorite dish and, you know, you complain about it, but the, comp you know, the owner says, screw you. So you go someplace else and find something pretty good, but then something happens there. I am curious about your experience at Twitch because the other thing is like, you know, we're going to have content moderation because like no platform is going to be fully just open probably. Um, that's what the internet is. But, you know, then all of the different pieces mm -hmm. of it are going to have different rules. How Twitch is interesting because it does a lot of community-based moderation, which can become, you know, problematic because it's like if everybody becomes a certain way. But how did that play out for you? And are you finding YouTube to be pretty good as a as a as a because I mean I think Twitch is wider open in a lot of ways than YouTube. But. Yeah, I like Twitch because it's more community based, whereas mm -hmm. YouTube it doesn't it doesn't feel the same. Yeah. Uh, but I was sort of kind of pushed out of that environment because of it was just a massive echo chamber, uh, and I was getting harassed by a lot of creators on that platform. And it's a problem when the moderators and people that are actually behind the scenes share kind of the same beliefs mm -hmm. and then it, you can't help but, but think are they being biased is, is this favoritism or something like that so I'm happy on YouTube because I feel like I'm building a bigger platform on there and I can hopefully you know funnel some of that into other platforms because I, right. I do think that change needs to be done to the gaming space and, and the Twitch space because it's definitely one-sided. This is like an area where I think the the main base of any sort of service is suddenly at odds with the culture of the people who are in power. So by and large, the people with the college degrees have risen to the top of every major company uh, in the country. They practiced cancel culture and sort of far-left ideology on campus, and now they're taking it into Facebook. They're taking it into Twitch. They're taking it into Blizzard Activision, right? So if y'all could actually go ahead and put up an image on the screen from the latest World of Warcraft patch is kind of been cracking me up as an example of like where this, this tension is because like Activision Blizzard uh, who do World of Warcraft they have basically had Me Too problems, right? So the culture of harassment, and they, they may well, I don't know. Um, but they're basically, their, their fans and the people who play the game have called on them to do better. And so instead of just and so just instead of just making that point, right, they have then gone into the game. And what I have here on the screen that people on the podcast can uh, hear described is basically they went into the game and they cleaned up imagery in the game to desexualize it. So in the game, you can go to some vampire's castle and you can find this portrait here of a barely naked woman, right, sprawled out on a couch. And they've turned it to a bowl of fruit. And they've done this across the game. If you can find a woman on a wall with cleavage, right, they've cleaned it up, flattened her chest and slapped a t-shirt on her. Is that the customers who want this? Do gamers want that kind of culture? Or is it just this core elite right at the top who think that this is what they want? I think it's a mixture of both, honestly, because 
first of all, <laughs> I wish they would have put is, peaches there instead. Yeah, I, no, Those are uh, too sexy. Oh, sorry. Come on, come on. No, no melons uh, or peaches. I don't even know what's going on. Is she wearing pants? I it think looks she's... like she's wearing a mask. <laughs> I think so it's she a... was COVID compliant, at least. I don't know. I think it's a combination of both yeah. because on the one hand, if the mob gets loud enough, I can see how these companies will cave in because they don't want to, you know, uh, anger yeah. their uh, fan base. But I also think that there are some people that actually advocate for this because we have to consider tribalism. I think that a lot of folks that participate in cancel culture don't necessarily believe in what they're preaching. They might just be following the herd. This is just by observation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I just I bring this up because of the prudish element yeah, of it, right? No, and there's a faint, you know, in the 90s, a lot of feminists and people like Camille Polly and whatnot would complain about what they called fainting couch feminism, where women who were like, you have to protect me from ever seeing anything, you know, that might offend my delicate sensibilities. And in a way, they were reinscribing a conservative ca- characterization of women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, when, I, when you brought this up, I was thinking of, the, you know, there was a moment where uh, John Ashcroft, the hyper-conservative attorney general of George W. Bush in the early 2000s, was appearing in a uh, Capitol building or, you know, somewhere in D.C. where there were naked statues behind him, and he had them covered up. And I'm like, holy cow, but now it's like left-wing woke scolds, you know, replacing yeah. boobs with fruit. It's weird. The other thing about this, to go back to China, Blizzard, you know, they, they clearly had a workplace issue that, you know, they needed to deal with. And, I, you know, that's great. Um, but they they also cave to the Chinese Communist Party all the time in terms of their streams and things like that. And that is a much larger and more important issue about free expression and about corporate responsibility and corporate cave-ins, I think. Um, you know, we had this weird moment over the past couple of years where, um, you know, NBA players in America were, you know, talking about Black Lives Matter and things like yep. that. And then the minute anybody affiliated with the NBA said something bad about China— you know, you heard LeBron James, like, shut it down, you know, and then the league shut down that kind of conversation. And I, you know, I'm glad to see uh, criminal justice reform taking place. This is something that was in the first issue of Reason in 1968, like a long time coming. But then, you know, what do you say about corporations that are, you know, caving in and pre-censoring themselves? Blizzard does it, the NBA does it, Hollywood is increasingly doing it because they want to placate a, an emerging market. That's a really interesting question for libertarians because we believe or I believe that, you know, ca- uh, capitalism and commercial exchange tends to liberate things. But we're seeing something weird happening with that. Yeah, we tend to believe in market forces and sort of yeah. like the gravity of, of what the market's going to want. But it does seem to be that most of these trends are to appease minorities within the market, right? Mm-hmm. Like just really small, loud cohorts. And so that's not market behavior. If you are in doing an, an entire mechanism of your company, rechanging something to appease just a very small group, that's not supposed to be how markets work. And these co- corporations have been captured. They're not functioning the way that you would think they would act in a normal marketplace. Amazon censoring books, um, Twitter deplatforming people who bring in people to that platform. They don't want as many people as they can get. They want the right people. And that's kind of a scary place to be yeah. because the standard is always changing for what's the right kind of person. At what cost, though, do you think that they would lose revenue and eventually stop doing that? Or does this not matter to them? Yeah, you know, I think it depends on the individual uh, entity we're talking about. But I think they kind of understand that on some level. And I think, 
you know, Amazon, uh, which polled uh, or now says that it won't stock books that treat transgender identity when as Harry a psychological problem. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and that that's a good example of like it's you know we we you got to take the big view of that particular book which had been at Amazon for you know several years because I think it came out like three or four years ago. The it's still for sale on BarnesandNoble.com mm-hmm. and it's still at the uh, publisher's website, et cetera. Yeah. So like you know it's still there, but it's getting pulled off of Amazon. Amazon, you know, uh, it's also screwed up that uh, senators, right wing senators, like. At, wrote letters to Amazon demanding that they explain what they're doing. And like, I don't want the government, you know, threatening people either, you know, overtly or implicitly by that type of behavior. But, um, you know, is, you know, what do you do to lobby Amazon to say, you know what, like books on the margin, keep, keep listing them rather than not. And I think Amazon, you know, is a capitalist organization and they want to make money. And I think, if there's a strong show of people saying, you know what, we don't want to live in a world where we have to agree with everything every time I walk into Walmart, every time I walk into Starbucks, every time I walk in, you know, figuratively to Amazon, I have to agree with everything that is here. That's insane. Uh, we want to live in a world where there is a robust sense of debate and, you know, uh, let's have at it. I mean, Amazon was launched with the idea of, of selling every book that was available, mm-hmm. you know, and that's like a pretty good goal. And that means you're going to carry the Dr. Seuss books that Dr. Seuss, the Dr. Seuss Foundation said, oh, my God, these are so racist. We're pulling them. Yeah, interestingly, most of the books that they pulled had not registered on BookScan in sales for years. So they were effectively you know, invisible to begin yeah, with. And that's how you draw reattention to yeah. these things. You yeah. you reignite people's interest in stuff that you want them to not look at by trying to cover it up. The censorious behavior always backlashes. Yep. Vanessa, I'm curious where you're at on the issue of trying to get government involved in bringing these companies to heal to act in a more open manner, right? So Amazon, you know, bans a single book. The, the Senate's, you know, Senate Republicans start trying to pressure them with letters to go backwards the other way. You see Democrats do this as well. Do you want to see government involved in this process at all? Definitely no right or wrong answer, but. <laughs> no, I don't, because the, I, I feel like that would just open up another can of worms, because if they can dictate that aspect, what else can they do with those organizations? I would prefer the government not because I'm from the position where if I get deplatformed, I'll just go somewhere else. And yeah, it might be annoying if I get kicked off at another platform and another one, but I would prefer to do that than having, I think you said in the document, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi being in charge of Twitter. Right. No. Yeah. Um, having said that, you know, then the question becomes, how do you affect a kind of cultural, I don't want to say revolution, but kind of a, a cultural swell to say, you know what? We want to have more speech, even if, it, especially if it makes us uncomfortable. Um, we want to have, I guess, you know, rules, some rules of decorum, because like a lot of speech online is just awful. You know, it's just terrible, and like there's a lot of bad faith argument going on. And uh, you know, you, I mean, I think part of the problem is is that these ultimately a lot of it is subjective, and you can't, you know, you don't have the scalpel to carve out this and that. And I wish that, you know, social media platforms who are all begging for regulation because they know that they're going to be able to write the regulation and they're Mm -hmm. going to write it. This always happens when things get regulated. The major players write the regulation to freeze the marketplace so they they maintain the market share when regulation goes into place. Um, I don't want that either because, like, the last thing I want, you know, than the government dictating what Facebook does is Facebook writing regulation so that 
it's really impossible to, to move around Facebook. Yeah, you mentioned competitors in places that just sort of are not regulated as tightly in terms of moderation. I mentioned Parler often. Did you ever dip your foot into Parler yeah, when I they did. launched? I, I, it, was I a, I mean, it was an awful experience. Yeah, I, 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 almost <laughs> any time a new platform, a new really technology bad. comes up, I, I will try it out because I'm like, you never know. And, yeah. and, you know, and uh, yeah, Parler. I had a chance to get verified on Parler. Oh, that's and I, I managed nice, to get yeah. verified on Parler, never on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, but it was awful. I mean, because yeah. like, it's basically where you go if you want to only talk about politics and be bombarded with pornographic images yeah. of Hunter Biden. That's the only kind of content that well, was on there. you're selling it. You know, you're selling it pretty good there. <laughs> this, but, that's where you, you know. go for that kind of content. And, and now is, they're by wrecking. the way, that's a nightmare when everything is politicized. I mean, for me, from a libertarian yes. position, that's the world that I want to escape where everything is political. So, you know, whether or not you urinate standing up or sitting down, this was a big issue for like German feminists in the in the 70s and 80s. You know, it's like, holy cow, like, you know, who do you, who you love, you know, what kind of food you eat, everything. And I, I like political art. I like to, obviously I like talking about politics, but like, I don't want to live in a world that everything is politicized. In the old Soviet Union, more than rock and roll, like Elvis, it was songs about like teenage romance about like people like Paul Anka that drove the Soviet authorities nuts because they were they had no political dimension to them, and they the Soviet authorities didn't want to allow their, their you know their slaves to think that there was a world beyond politics, and that's where we are in America on the right and the left. And oh, my gosh. oh my god, that it's, is it's that is true. But will yeah. you ever leave though, and to like go to these these outside spaces? Because I know you're on locals. Yeah, yeah. is locals? It's kind of like Patreon. A little bit of a creator element, yeah. but everyone's doing politics there, right? It's no, you yeah. can. I mean, it depends on whose individual communities, but I think that's the result of any platform you go on. People won't stop talking about politics as of right now. But like, I don't want to completely abandon the mainstream platforms because I think it's important to still be in that to avoid this giant echo chamber. So as much as I don't really like Twitch at the moment, I'm not abandoning it because I think there's a lot of work to be done over there. That's great. And I, you know, locals in particular, I know from a lot of creators, they like it because the, the, you know, the, the house cut on, you know, your uh, operations is smaller than it is at Patreon or Substack. And they do uh, promise, uh, you know, like less of a heavy hand on anything, which is good. That'll probably change, you know, and I think, you know, both one of the benefits of all these new proliferating platforms is freedom. Like that's exit. You get to build your own little utopian community, at least for a while until enough people get there. And then you realize hell is other people and you have to move further onto the frontier. Um, but, um, you know, there's also a, a, a continuing kind of bifurcation and uh, marginalization of audiences. So something like Substack, yep. which is mostly for writing, has been great. It's allowed people who were stifled in kind of more conventional outlets to write what they want and to, to make a living out of it. But, it, you know, it's kind of annoying when you have to go from this Substack to this Substack to this Substack, and it would be nice to have like you know just a bundle <laughs> yeah well i mean this is also very funny right yeah. that, you know you were talking about censoriousness and and kind of liberation there's also that bundling and debundling because we've you know we came out of an era people people got rid of cable because the mm. bundle we were yeah. being sold it yeah. was like well there's one thing 
and 20 channels I never watch. I don't want that. I just want the one channel. Now I want that back. Yeah, or yeah. something. <laughs> if you can make the bundle yourself, right? You know, and obviously you can do that in various ways. Ah, you subscribe to four, five, six different streaming services. Now Paramount Plus is trying yeah. to launch a competitor to Disney Plus, right. and I wasn't going to get it, but then they started advertising what's going to be on it, and well, I am going to get Paramount Plus. It's just, it's too much. And like Substack newsletters are the next problem of that that front. Like I just want to pay a membership fee and get unlimited access to a bunch of different the, letters. If markets are working, and I think they are, you know, the, the people who will figure out how to curate this stuff for, uh, you know, a certain number of people, that those services are emerging. Uh, there's some news services that do that and they cut deals with things. Um, but, you know, this is, uh, this is also, it's kind of a great time to be alive then because, you know, the the main point is over the past 20 years, over the past 50 years, certainly over the past 500 years, more people are able to, you know, enter into public conversation and argue stuff and also kind of express themselves. And I think that's good. And, you know, this does worry me about cancel culture and wokeism where in the name of, you know, it's a, a state of exception to go back to Agamben in order to preserve public discourse, we need to start shutting people down because, you know, it's so bad right now. Like we can't allow anybody to just say anything so that we can have a world where anybody can say anything. It's, you know, yeah. paradoxical. Doesn't make any sense. I want to run a poll by you here real quick. So if we could get the uh, the image up of Pew Research. They did a poll on partisan divides, kind of widening over the role of government and tech firms and whether or not there should be a restriction on misinformation. I was a little bit surprised by this finding because of how much Republicans have been talking about engaging in censorship uh, online and then trying to rein in tech companies. But basically what it has is over the past three years, Democrats have moved from 60% uh, approval of tech companies taking steps to restrict false information all the way up to 76. So basically getting uh, the tech companies to do the right thing on 40% to 65%, getting government to come in there and do it. On both accounts, Republicans are less favorable than they were in 2018. It used to be the case that for government taking action to restrict false information online, uh, Republicans sat at 37. Now they're at 28. I suspect that's an element of Trumpism there and wanting to share whatever sorts of information that's out there, particularly on like the vaccines or China and the coronavirus. But Democrats are just becoming incredibly pro-censorship, while Republican lawmakers, I think, are. But Republican voters are not. Where's the, where's the disconnect? Uh, well, one of the things is it's interesting you start in 2018 because what happened then? You know, the Republicans lost the control of Congress uh, and, and Republicans now feel really shut out of governing in, in Washington because they lost the White House and they lost the House and the Senate. And so they feel like they have a target on their back. And I think, you know, a lot of this, one of the really baleful or negative things over the past, I don't know how, you know, 200 years is that, you know, parties don't, you know, they pretend to have principles, but they really just want to have power. And so when they're out of power, you know, it's always interesting when when Democrats are out of power, they're like, you know, the executive branch has too much power. But when their guy is in, they're like, you know, the executive branch can do whatever they want. And that flips perfectly with Republicans. So I think that's part of the story here, which is just one party's out of power. And so they want the government mm. to have less power. Do you suspect it will swing back as soon as Republicans get their hands on a majority again? Yeah, 
I think I think it. I mean, not in perfect uh, sync, but yeah. And and also, by the way, the Republicans should you know take a lot of comfort in the fact they're almost certain to win the House and probably the Senate in twenty twenty two, just based on large cyclical changes. Um, you know, uh, but um, so you know, we should check back in in a couple of years and see where the directions are headed. I want to close with the solutions for this problem. I think a lot of it is cultural. It's a bottom-up problem that we have created, uh, maybe in our homes, maybe on college campuses, and now it's percolating up to the rungs of power. Vanessa, what is your cure for the cancel culture problem across the three rungs? What do we need to tackle first? I'm kind of of the mind it just starts with individuals. <laughs> that, that is exactly <laughs> it. It starts with the individual. That's the, that's the easiest way everyone work on themselves. And I think that but first of all, I think that this, it works two ways. One, the individual needs to learn to stick up for themselves and not confess for things that they didn't do. And then on the other side, I think people also need to learn to pick and choose their own battles a little bit better uh, and stop weaponizing, you know, the internet to hold people accountable for opinions. You think that's like the the nature of just being open to feedback all the time, yes. like on social media? Yes. There's a sense that if five people DM you and say you did something wrong, that you really did. Because 20 years ago, if you did something wrong on the internet, you just never heard from anybody. And right. there wasn't this constant feedback loop that we're now in. We're not built for this. I think maybe, maybe the next generation of kids who grow up on social media will have a better sense of what's real life and what's fiction when it comes to people messaging them and telling them to repent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think so too. I'm, I'm already starting to see a shift with some people and, and not a lot of the younger generation is down with this whole cancel culture thing. So I suspect that's going to happen. I hope, I hope Gen Z thinks we're all a bunch of scolds. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's always these generational things. So Gen Z will hook up with boomers yeah. uh, to promote free speech again. You know, yeah. and Gen X, sad Gen X, and, uh, you know, and, and millennials are kind of, you know, they, they can be censorial or something. But I, you know, to go along with what you're saying, and I, I do think, you know, everything starts with, you know, with individual choice and individual determination. I think, a, you know, an important part of contemporary culture is we're, we're so presentist, like everything just started today and the past doesn't matter, you know. And I think kind of rehearsing history and like, you know, understanding the battles for free speech and free expression and the, particularly the people that um, it helped. And it, just in the post-World War II era, the people who benefited from free speech weren't, you know, white plutocrats. You know, it wasn't Newt Gingrich and Joe Biden or something like that or Donald Trump. It was people who were gay. It was people who were black. It was people who were um, marginal identities or communities within America. And by getting the ability to free, speak freely, that's, you know, what allowed social progress, the variously defined. And I think understanding that and going back to that again and again in my, in my story and reason, I started with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who is the publisher of Howell. He, you know, he, he put a lot on the line in order to allow Allen Ginsberg, who was a gay man, who was a weirdo. I mean, he was a beatnik. Or, you know, he was like the, was one of the kings of the beatniks, you know, yep. the crown prince of beatniks. Um, you know, his voice had to be heard and it couldn't be heard because speech was being stifled. Um, those types of people, uh, there are other people, uh, Jonathan Rash, who I mentioned, uh, talks a lot about Frank Kameny, who was a federal employee who was gay, who got fired in the late 50s, early 60s for being gay because it was against federal law. And he became a staunch free expression family, he, you know, in order to advance his case. And he eventually, you know, 
won the, uh, not in his particular circumstances, but he won the cultural battle. And I think understanding that free speech enables um, people to make a better world and to live in a freer world. You know, we, we need to know that history because otherwise we're all focused on, you know, just the current moment and the last 15 minutes and the next 15 But the, the critique of the libertarian approach here and looking to the past, I think tends to leave out that the world is just so much different. People are the same. Human condition yeah. is still the same. But the, the barriers and the size of the people who are able to control the conversation right. and the private sector, like it's never been this powerful I, I before. Don't think that, I think that I don't, I don't agree with that. Okay. I think, you know, when, and I'm old enough to remember, you know, growing up in a world of three networks, you know, before Fox even, uh, you know, uh, and The Simpsons and things like that. But, you know, when you grew up in a world of like one newspaper in every town and three networks, the discourse was much more constrained than it is now. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is Facebook, Google, uh, you know, Apple, et cetera, you know, Amazon, they can they can uh, exert a lot of influence on things. But the fact is, is like at Amazon, you can buy books that you could never have gotten in 99 percent of America mm -hmm. before. Um, and ideas, there are still all places that you can start talking about stuff and building the next, you know, the next Twitter, the next locals, the next whatever. And I think we need to keep that in mind and, and look to the future, actually. I, I don't think libertarians, I, I think we should be informed by the past, but what we're really looking at is, okay, what's the version of the shining city on a hill down the road that we want to be building and how do we get there? And, you know, for me, I'm still kind of amazed at how much free speech is available. And then we just need to to kind of own that and create a narrative where we're empowered by that rather than we're, we're worried that we're gonna get canceled. That's optimism we need. I like to clean the slate every week with a little bit of good news, just personal stuff, things in the news. Vanessa, anything good on your mind? You're putting me on the spot. I'm always putting you on the spot. It's uh, my job. Okay, <laughs> good news, I like the little things. Today I went and I got a cup of coffee it was terrible. I threw it out. And then your lovely assistant here made me another cup and I was so excited. Hey. So that is it my doesn't, doesn't news. Get any better than that. <laughs> I, uh, I ran out of coffee filters and I was making coffee this morning and it, out of a paper towel. And then my coffee, my coffee fell right through it into my pour over. And I was like, this is going to be the worst day of my life. Uh, but no, they get coffee here. So it's that always catastrophized. <laughs> you know, it's like, look at this, you know, um, I will say uh, one of the things, uh, you know, that I'm really excited about, and I think it is good news is the change in our perception of what drugs are. Uh, you know, you guys talking about coffee, right? Mm -hmm. Like caffeine and mm -hmm. things like that. And over again, over my lifetime, certainly, but in, in an accelerated form over the past decade or two, we started thinking about how do we use different types of substances, some legal, some illegal, to kind of change how we feel. Uh, you know, this includes pharmaceuticals, it includes psychedelics, it includes weed. And like everywhere, it's not that people should be getting, you know, intoxicated all the time, but it's like, you know, we're taking our consciousness more seriously and we're trying to do little interventions on a daily basis, an hourly basis to make ourselves better, to think better, to be happier, et cetera. And for me, that's all part of what the internet, you know, kind of promised that we would we would be we would have more control over our own lives and how we thought and what the future might look like on an individual level or a social level. And so drugs. You know, drugs. <laughs> Nick Gillespie. It always comes back to drugs. Uh, I think for me, I this is my third week of being a homeschool parent. And I'm happy to say I don't hate it. 
I actually have really enjoyed it. Uh, doing a little bit less work overall from my nine to five stuff and focusing on teaching language arts, teaching history, reviewing a little geography. <laughs> I love it. I think it's What's been- What's the bullying situation? <laughs> I am the bully. Yeah, yeah now okay. I am yeah. the bully. Finally. Uh, but uh, there is no lunch money to take. So I think uh, that's just been a good experience. This is something I was really afraid to launch into and being in it now, I'm like, okay, the scary part is making the leap. Uh, but once your feet are in it, it's like, I know how to teach. I know how to talk about these subjects. I know how to help someone learn how to write. Like, I can do it. So I'm, I'm pleasantly that surprised. Is, I, I'm really happy for you. And it's, you know, one of the other things that we used to talk a lot about in the 90s and early 2000s was like mass personalization of everything. And education is a big part of yeah. that. And like, I think that's great. You know, we can look the way we want. There are more kind of subject positions for like what beauty is or attraction and everything. There's more drugs, you know, so, and I'm, you know, there's more, but there's like in education, this is one of the weird blessings of COVID is that more people are doing this because they're fed up with factory, you know, we don't eat factory farm chicken anymore and we don't want factory farmed kids, you know, and so more power to you. More drugs, more genders, more education options. There's just more of everything these much, days. Yeah. All right, that is it for this episode of Right Now. I've been your host, Stephen Kent, sitting down with Vanessa Gothics and Nick Gillespie of Reason. Next week, our guest is Sean Kemak of the Narratives Project. So be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel so you're getting a ping when we have new videos, which is every few days. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, keep asking why. Stay out of line and be a bug in the system. Have a great week.